Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today, we get a slightly different view on startup investing as we look at equity crowdfunding. Rob Murray-Brown is probably the leading independent expert in the UK on this and has very strong views on the industry and its issues. We discuss a lot of the problems that can arise and how investors might avoid them. It's a must for anyone interested in investing in startups. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So without any further ado, I join this episode. So today's guest is Rob Murray-Brown from ECF.Buzz. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks very much. Thank, thanks for having me on here. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one because I think from where I sit, you are probably about as knowledgeable about crowdfunding as anybody else in the country, certainly anyone who works outside the major platforms. I thought what we might start with is how you got interested in crowdfunding. Okay, well, um, for those who don't know, equity crowdfunding uh, started in the UK in 2011. Uh, the first platform was one called Crowdcube, which is now the largest platform. And I've been involved in startups since I was, uh, or since I left university, really, in 1982, and was fascinated to, to so I just came across it because I'm involved in, in the sort of startup world. And I was thinking to myself, my goodness, I wish I'd had access to that sort of uh, facility to raise capital in my heyday when I was in my sort of 30s and early 40s. Let's have a look at it. So I had a look. I had a small punt in one company with some other friends, which didn't go very well. Uh, and uh, then I got involved and I started to see um, huge problems, um, mainly with the sort of information asymmetry that is presented by the platforms. So the two major platforms now are, are Crowdcube and Cedars. People like Syndicate Room were much better, but they've now sort of withdrawn from the from the pure crowdfunding world and, and, and run funds for more serious investors, really. Yeah, so that, I got involved, and then I started the blog, and then I started the um, Investors Network, and uh, I'm still involved. Excellent. So you run a, a website called ecf.buzz. Perhaps you can just explain what that is, because you obviously have a professional interest in some sense now. I was very keen to to see if I could help make equity crowdfunding work. Um, so I started the blog back in about ooh, 2014, 15, probably. Um, and from that, we developed quite a good following. So I decided to set up a what is a, an investors or um, anyone who's interested in equity crowdfunding, a club. Um, so you pay an annual, small annual subscription of £36. And for that, you have access to our database, which has got just north of 1,300 companies on it, um, expert advice that we have on there, uh, a forum for investors to chat to each other. And really, really, it's a, it's a place for people to learn and to learn how to help themselves. We, we, we don't give advice on what to invest in. Um, it's a bit of a mugs game, in my opinion. But we do tell people what to look out for, what to avoid. We have a list of people to avoid now, which has been developed over the last nine years, because we found that the same types of people kept on reappearing in the crowdfunding world. Uh, so we thought it was important that people knew um, the backgrounds um, before they invested. Are these people who've sort of done crowdfunding stuff before and perhaps haven't behaved well and and come back for a second fight? It's a tricky balance, but... but a lot of equity crowdfunding is about businesses that can't get funding anywhere else. So they tried, well, they tried the bank, but post 2008, most banks weren't lending anything to small startups. They've had family and friends money. They've run out of that. They've, they've got these ideas. Um, I've generally been amazed at the lack of understanding when it comes to running businesses that, that, that the UK startup market seems to have. And equity crowdfunding has actually in a rather perverse way, become a very easy way of raising a couple of hundred thousand pounds to kickstart your idea or your business, um, providing you you give people an incentive to invest, which unfortunately means making up numbers and projections. Yes, yes. We'll get onto that in a little bit. I think 
Before we get into the meat and drink, I'm sure most of our listeners will know what crowdfunding is or equity crowdfunding is. Perhaps you can just quickly explain for those who don't what we're actually talking about here. Yes, sure. Well, crowdfunding as such, sort of Kickstarter and Indiegogo started way before 2011, but they, 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 that's called rewards-based crowdfunding. So you might invest £100, um, that might get you an early bird ticket to buy something that's worth £300 if it's ever produced. Yeah, I think the idea of Kickstarter is very much you've got a product and you're pre-ordering to some extent. Yeah, yeah. So equity crowdfunding is where uh, a company, I mean, several companies I know have done both. Um, but you're you're actually buying equity, so you're buying shares in the company. So the value will be set, company value will be set between the company and the platform, which is, as I've just said, uh, either probably CrowdCube or Cedars. They will then run a campaign for anything between thirty and sixty days online. So if you go on there on on onto those websites, you'll see these live campaigns. You can ask questions of the founders. Sometimes they answer them, sometimes they sort of walk around them, depending on how um, critical they are. And uh, you have to decide whether you want to buy shares. So one incentive to get you to buy shares goes back to the Kickstarter Indiegogo idea. So you might, for instance, if you're investing in a new craft brewery, they might say, right, well, for the first year, you can have a 30% discount on our beers, which will send you weekly. Which is fantastic if the company still goes, you know, nine months later, then you've probably got your money back. But it, it's it's really, it's a way for companies to fund themselves through selling their equity. One of the downsides, obviously, if you think about it, is that that equity that you're holding is illiquid. Very difficult to, to move it unless the company sells. Uh, well, there are various ways of moving it. One is the company sells, in which case you probably made some money. The other way is the company goes bust, in which case you can claim some loss relief. It might float, but we haven't had a single company float yet that I'm aware of. Some have sold. Some have sold. We can go into that later. Some some have done very well, actually. A few, not many, but a few have done very well. As everyone knows, most startups fail. That is a fact of life. That is a fact of life, and, that's just, and crowdfunding really can't get around that, can it? No. But it, it, it's, it's what's important, in my opinion, is the way that they fail. So if, if they fail because the idea was nonsense in the first place, and they've also made up some numbers that were pure fantasy, and they possibly got a celebrity name on board who isn't really on board at all, but has sort of signed a letter to say that they might be interested at some future stage, uh, then the information that's being given to the public is, is not accurate. I have a real issue with something like the FCA, who I've been told ever since Vince Cable was um, the business minister, just just to take a back seat and, and let it roll and see what happens. And I've got some pretty staggering numbers for you, actually. Uh, okay, give us some numbers. I don't know, I don't know whether they hit, hit, hit you with them now. Well, 530-odd million has been wasted on equity crowdfunding since 2011. So it's gone, finished. Okay, out, out of how much raised? Well, the total raised, uh, I don't have that figure, but it's probably, um, I mean, I can I can run it. Uh, I would think it's um, about four times that, I should think, okay. two billion. Okay, so the other key point in there about equity crowdfunding is that it is a, very much a retail investor um, environment. This is not something where it's sophisticated investors, professional investors who very much, it's they can take a caveat emptor approach a lot more easily. Well, yes, that, that was true up until sort of maybe a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Now what we're finding more and more, actually, and, and uh, this is a whole other issue really, is the VCs are getting involved. So they, they might have a company on their books which isn't doing very well, and they're thinking, mm, okay, it's a consumer-facing business, and um, we'll try a little bit of equity crowdfunding to see whether we can boost, because it's very good PR. You end up possibly with, you know, maybe a 1,000 
investors. There are a thousand new customers, essentially, and brand promoters. The VCs are, are obviously sophisticated, and and they know how to tell a story so that um, Joe Public probably doesn't understand what they're saying exactly. Um, things like share rights issue, you know. The, if you're buying ordinary B shares and the VCs hold shares, which give them certain rights, preemption rights, and also you know, rights if, if the company is sold or if it fails, mean that the small investor really just gets wiped out. And there have been instances where, where a founder has, has either post or pre-using equity crowdfunding has brought in a VC and the business has gone seriously wrong as a result. And, and everyone's lost their money, but the VCs actually walk away pocketing whatever was taken in the liquidation. Yeah, I think it, it seems to become a problem. And I actually have heard a few EIS fund managers make the same complaint about you get VCs coming in at a later stage, the issue preference shares, they have preemptive participation rights. So in the event of a liquidation, they make sure they get their money back before any other investor. And in extreme cases... And on that point, they, they instigate the liquidation quite often because they, they can only see it as the only way. Whereas if they were a bit more patient and, and, and they held fire and they are consulted with other shareholders and other stakeholders, there may have been a way out. I mean, there are some classic cases going on at the moment. Yeah, it's I was not, just reading not, on your blog. Not, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, not, it's not pretty, actually. And it's... It's going to do permanent damage to equity crowdfunding unless, I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm involved, to try and alter that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm in, well, I was in the process before COVID came along of trying to set up a fund. So, so we, we would take in businesses that wanted funding. We would teach them what we know or what I know in the hope that that might make them better businesses and we would then get them funding. But we would be you know, arm in arm with them the whole way. I mean, equity crowdfunding platforms don't get involved in the business at all. Let's talk about the platforms a little bit, because I think there's kind of an ideal perspective about how this might work with platforms or, or in some sense, what perhaps even what people think platforms are doing uh, versus the reality of what they, you know, what the diligence in particular is or isn't. The idea, which is which, which you know, which was what came out in two thousand eleven twelve, was that you you would say invest in in ten companies, so you put a grand in each, that's ten grand. Uh, you get your EIS, so you get you get three grand back roughly, and one of those companies would go on to make um, twenty times return, so you get twenty grand. The rest would go bust, but but but. You can see the numbers, they really work there. Yeah, it's a classic venture sort of profile of returns, really. Absolutely. But, but, the, but the problem is that actually the best company to date has made seven times return, and that was for a very limited number of investors. The next best one after that is three, and there's only one of those. You know, and, and the other ones are all sort of um, one and a bit and two and a bit. Now, you need a lot of those in your portfolio of 10 to um, uh, allow for nine to be going, well, I mean, you, you obviously you need, you, you, need, you, need, you need 90 to go bust and you need 10 returning, well, it doesn't work, does it? I mean, mm -hmm. do them no, no you, you need to have then over half of them succeeding if you're going to get twice your money back on each one. If you can be bothered, like I can, and you go back over the history of the thing, if you if you read what um, Vince Cable was saying between 2011 when it started in 2015 when he left office, it was very much you know uh, this is great don't touch it we're getting phenomenal numbers coming through um, EIS is taking off SEIS is taking off we're getting startup numbers heading north you know it's all looking good this is all post 2008 so we need it. Blah, blah, blah. But he wasn't actually looking at the quality of the businesses being funded. The FCA's only regulation really for the platforms is that the information they supply mustn't be misleading. But no one's ever defined the word misleading. Yes. Well, uh, so yeah. so if, if you don't, if you don't, for instance, there's one classic case. If, if you don't tell someone when you launch a campaign that you have already defaulted on your bank loan, 
for two million pounds and the bank has been slightly irritated with you and is threatening to pull the plug. And presumably this is a, this is an example you have specifically in mind here. Yeah, so but you don't you don't not tell people that. You just don't tell them. Because no, no one asks because they don't know. That's personal information between the company and the bank. So it never comes into the public domain. It then turns out that a year later, having funded on one of the major platforms, this company went west and had to be sold for, you know, I think they got 6p in the pound or something, the investors. And it then turned out, actually, that the bank had called in the loan and they had defaulted prior to the platform. Now, the platform claimed that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is possible. It's possible, but it kind of suggests they didn't do their diligence properly because a professional investor, a professional VC, probably would have found that out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, they, so, so, so the platforms hide behind this thing that they, that, that they have a self-assessment form that all companies have to fill in prior, prior to launching a live campaign. So if, if they say yes, 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 and yes to everything, then the platforms are covered. Because, yeah, and and there's been a recent ruling actually by the financial ombudsman in a case where, in my opinion, it was clearly the case that the platform had not done due diligence. Uh, But the platform claimed it had a signed form with the director's name on it. And the financial ombudsman said, okay, well, I've, I've got, I can't act because, you know, you're covered. And so the complaint was, was taken away. Yeah, certainly if you look at the advertising that a lot of these sites do, and not just CrowdCube and Cedars, but pretty much all the platforms in the sector do talk about the diligence that they do, but they talk about it in nice general terms, but they don't really go into details unless you... Re- I've tried to find the details of what they do for diligence on the Cedars and CrowdCube website, and it's there. But finding it is not easy. And when you actually read through it, it's kind of a best of fact check. They've got their information on Company's House and they've gone and looked at Company's House and said it's there. They haven't said anything about the quality of that information. So they might check the shareholder data and say, yes, what this company is saying about shareholders is right. But they'd say nothing about what the implications of what that means for investors. So when you talked about the preference share issue earlier, the fact that somebody's sitting there with participation rights that could um, just make things a mess for equity shareholders is not something that the platform seems to take account of. Well, no, it's not. And and most people I talk to who who invest small amounts in, in you know, there, there are people out there who've invested over 100 companies. Mm-hmm. And, and and they're putting sort of 50 quid into each, you know, which is quite a lot of money, actually, when you add it all up. And, I mean, it's done over sort of five years. They don't know what a preference share is. And, the, and actually, to be fair, I speak to a lot of people who say, I don't even read the business plan. I invest if the, if the perk's good enough. I, and I get my EIS or my SEIS, which is 50%. And, and you know, there, there was a great one, actually. There was a suit company. They were getting... Getting the, it was an online business based in London, but they were getting the suits made in uh, the Himalayas, so obviously very cheap labour, and and very good at making tailored suits. But it went wrong, and went west. But one of the guys I spoke to was an investor. He, he put a lot of money in, thousands of pounds. Said he wasn't bothered because he he'd got ten suits over the last three years, and that they were worth considerably more money that than he'd um, invested. Presumably, one of the challenges of the space is that. For a lot of people here who are investing hundreds, 150 quid, it's, that's the price of some people of a big night out or not even not so big night out. So it's kind of they're playing at this. And yeah, I always think of the survey that came out te- a decade or so ago, investing with angels. They suggested 20 hours, angels who put 20 hours of diligence in got much better returns than investors who didn't. Um, I don't know why 20 specifically a threshold, but that's the only one they mentioned. If you're investing 150 quid, are you wanting to actually spend 20 hours doing diligence on these things? Well, no, absolutely not, no. But I mean, that, and that, and that is one of the issues. But when, when, when it comes to the company going, if it goes bust, 
the people who've, I mean, I've, again, I talked to lots of people who who've invested 150 quid who are very irritated because they feel they've been, especially if it turns out in the end that what what they were told was not the case. And I and I have numerous examples. They're all on the blog, and I know they're right because if they weren't right, someone would have sued me by now. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, I have had a couple of companies try to sue me, and I've just said, well. You can't sue someone for telling the truth, and they tend to go away. And certainly, you, reading the blog, I, I, I know it's just funny because at heart, I know you actually think crowdfunding is a really good thing, potentially. But reading the blog, it's kind of like a litany of um, horrors for, from an investment perspective. Well, it is, and, and, and it, it, it's a shame because I, when, when I get a good news story, I do write about it. Uh, there's a company called Cheeky Panda who supply loo roll made out of bamboo shoots. Uh, not literally shoots, I don't think, but, you know, they they process them, so it's not quite that spiky. And they've made a fortune out of COVID because everyone ran out of loo roll, if you remember, very early on. And and But actually, genuinely, it's a very interesting business run by a guy who really knows what he's doing, which is so important. He's done it before, not this particular business, but he's run a successful business before. That's something I always look for. You know, you, you get so many have-a-go heroes who, that's fine, but use your own money. Don't use someone else's money if you haven't a clue what you're doing. And actually, you know, the whole, pre, the whole pre-pack system we have in this country, which was set up well before the internet. In fact, quite a lot of it seems to have been set up in about the 19th century. It's not fit for purpose anymore. You really can't have businesses taking in half a million quid from, from not just from from online investors, but just investors full stop, anyone, and then forcing themselves into administration and buying buying out the the, the sort of dregs for fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, you've been quite vocal on the blog about the UK insolvency process and how well it does or rather doesn't work. You sort of touched it there can you perhaps just work through exactly what the issue is and why it doesn't really work or may not work for investors the main issue for me is the fact that insolvency practitioners get paid to look after the interests of the creditors and generally that's that's either um people who have secured loans or it's hmrc or it's trade creditors, and it, and it runs out in that sort of order. Um, shareholders have no standing whatsoever. They, they and, and unless they unless they have rights written in to their preference shares, like the VCs do. And the insolvency practitioners take a set fee for doing what they do, because generally they're they're, they're dealing with businesses that don't have very much cash. So what will happen is the business will come along and say, we need to go into administration. We can't trade anymore. We're insolvent. The insolvency practitioner will say, okay, we'll take you on. Here are the assets. We'll sell those. That will pay our fee. That's 50 grand. We don't really want to spend more than five minutes checking to see whether you've done anything illegal or not. Oh, you say you haven't? That's fine. We'll tick that box. We'll move on to liquidation. Uh, no one's complained. We haven't bothered to tell any creditors, actually, but no one's complained anyway. And uh, the next thing you see in, in the company's house is dissolved. Uh, meanwhile, creditors have been left in the lurch and shareholders are scratching their heads going, what the, what the hell just happened? And you notice that two months before this all happened, a new company was set up with a similar name, which happens to have two founders uh, who are the same people who've just dissolved the previous company. And they bought the assets for fifty thousand pounds, which were valued in the last accounts for two million. I mean, this happens daily. It's a story that I've seen repeatedly on your blog. Clearly, it doesn't seem right, and you know, I, you, you don't know if this was something the founders planned from outside, or it's this case of they've taken a punt, it's gone wrong, and this is a way not quite out of it, but where they say, well, actually, we can do okay out of this by doing. Th- this but either way it's not good for investors well it's well it's actually it's also it's, it's not good for uk plc because this this is all money that should be generating jobs and it should be generating gdp and actually it's all going sideways 
even if you ignore the EIS and SEIS tax reliefs, which essentially are taxes that are not being paid into the exchequer, so the money has to be found from somewhere. And okay, lots of people will say, well, it's just small potatoes, but you know, but it is real cash. It's the principle. Yeah, we're 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 looking at well over a hundred million pounds. If if you if you take the, that five hundred and thirty million figure I've got, and you and you say, okay, it's thirty thirty percent of that, so it's a lot of cash. And and then you've got all the sort of breakdown. So so the knock on effects of an administration and liquidation are generally small creditors don't get a look in. So, so we've got this problem. What would you suggest the rule changes should be to fix this? What do you think? How, how do we make this better? You, you need to power it all down and take it back to, you know, to scratch and say, okay, so how, how, how can we make a system that works in the 21st century with the internet and with, with equity crowdfunding? And you don't need the same rules for the same types of capital raising. Mm-hmm. But but you do need a system where someone is accountable. Because mm-hmm. what's happening at the moment is the taxman, the taxpayer rather, is picking up the tab for these failures. And and UK PLC is not moving forwards. You know, and, and even when we have a good idea, a company like Suguru, which was a fantastic, it's you know, it's a, a sensational product that went totally pear-shaped and was sold on to a German company for next to nothing funded you know through um i think pretty well every platform that was around actually because the 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 people running it didn't really understand the basics of um revenue and costs and that one has to be bigger than the other otherwise you go bust that's a shame business business is pretty simple really isn't it i mean you, you need to take in more money and more regularly than you pay it out yeah and if there's a gap you need some finance to bridge that gap yeah exactly but you need to be able to repay that finance you know i mean this is where the whole thing this whole the the whole idea of 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 internet businesses where you don't make revenue you collect customers for some future date when you can then ipo with a following of 50 million people which is all basically i suppose based on the on the concept of how successful facebook was it doesn't really work in the real world actually you know, for, for most businesses, it doesn't work. Anyway. Yeah, there's the odd, as you say, there's the Facebooks of the world and the Twitters of this world that do manage to create um, a platform and they're so big that there must be so, even monetizing it in a small way, which is frankly all that Twitter's done. You've got such a big user base that actually a small amount of monetization can actually make a, a reasonable business. But there's very few companies that can really do that. You touched earlier on about projections and business plans and kind of made up figures. Do you have any examples of what you meant by that? Do you, I mean, I can't sort of present one because this is a radio okay. broadcast. <laughs> Um, but okay. I mean, I can give you examples. You know, I mean, again, they're they're on the blog. I mean, a company. So so originally, what used to happen was Crowdkey would produce a, a three to five year projection, or the company would produce a projection, which was in in a standard Crowdkey format, and would show you know year 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 dot the year we're in, uh, making a small loss of ten thousand pounds. Year two, having received the funding, um, the turnover jumps from. 100,000 to 2 million and uh, you're at break even year 3 the 2 million turnover has gone to 5 million and you're at 1.5 million pound um either a beat or or net profit and but that never actually happens in real life i mean it, literally even with the companies who've done well that never happens yeah i mean the challenge with financial progressions a little bit is that to be a non entrepreneur you have to be an optimist i mean at the end of the day the statistics on company failure would probably put some rational people off. So there's probably is an optimism and bias amongst founders to begin with. So that's always going to be in projections. And certainly professional managers say companies never reach their projections. It's a matter of trying to suss out which ones to some extent are on the same page as, as those projections as opposed to ones that were just complete fantasy. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I and, and and I think this is where equity crowdfunding and 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 certainly Crowdcube more than Cedars because Cedars don't really 
allow their companies to produce projections, although you can get them privately with the company. It's where it's where they definitely are at fault because they they've over the years and they continue to do it even now. They they have used projections to incite the crowd to invest. You know, you you start seeing numbers north of a million pound in profit, and you immediately feel you know good. Mm-hmm. There's a buffer you, there. Exactly. So so and but I mean there is an enormous difference between being a Boris Johnson optimist which is basically complete nonsense, and actually being optimistic about the future, which is delivering something which is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the sort of the, the realistic optimism versus the fantasist, really, is how I sometimes put it. I mean, for, for fantasy, all fantasy gets you is into big trouble. You know, there, 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 there are some great examples over the last nine years of, of following this where I've seen businesses that really had a potential and really, really had a potential. And they have gone down the route of sort of the Johnson optimism, if I can call that. And it's, it, they end up, I mean, there's a classic one that went bust uh, about a year ago, Brewer, who, who started small, was really successful, based in London, really popular beers. You know, he, he was riding the wave of the craft brewing sector but he was riding it really well for a bit and then he got he got sort of slightly napoleonic and got slightly ahead of himself and he's now i, I don't know what's happened to him now actually but his company's gone very badly bust he, he'll probably be banned or possibly be banned as a director because there was some rather ridiculous stuff going on in the background and a lot of people who supported him have lost a lot of money and it was totally unnecessary he didn't need to do that and whether he was egged on by the platform, well, I don't know. But every time he came, because I, I actually spoke to him. I said, you know, you, you, you're going to shoot yourself in the head if you keep doing this. You can't keep expanding on the, on the basis that you're going to be making sales of X million next year, when actually from the previous projections, you're not even making half what you said, you know, because he, he came back three or four or five times on CrowdCube. And in the end, it, 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 it all went... Um, west which is crying shame because actually it was a great little business yeah it's, it's sometimes happens i think there's two problems sometimes that i see in these sort of companies so one is the company that perhaps should be a lifestyle business um in some sense so that as you say it's a nice little business but it's not geared for growth but they try to turn it into a growth business because that's what venture capitalists expect and that's how they're going to raise the money and it breaks the business and it sounds like that 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 was an example there you know when 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 you start you start your pitch by comparing yourself to brew dog um <laughs> then you know the alarm bells start ringing in 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 my um in my world because brew dog have have i mean if you, if you want to look at a success story with equity crowdfunding then brew dog has to be it yeah, they are. They're almost the poster child for the sector. I think. Well, I think absolutely. They 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 actually created equity crowdfunding before it existed. You know, they 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 were selling to their punks well before Crowdcube came on the scene. And uh, despite my disagreements with the fact that they've opened in America and everything, which I think is a bit bonkers, they are still, or certainly were a year ago, the fastest growing food and drinks business in the UK. Any business has its problems, and you can always quibble around the edge. But I, I, I think by any measure, they are a success. Looking certainly looking back to where they started from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And w- would you invest at today's value? Then and the answer has to be no. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't possibly comment. I'm not allowed. <laughs> um, so related to that, the other m- pr- problem that you cover that repeatedly arises on your blog is overtrading. And maybe you could perhaps give an example and maybe say what that is and how that works or, fa- or fails to work for a company. Yes, okay. Um, right, I think I've got a great example, actually, if you don't mind me using a real live company who's I'd be delighted. Trying, trying very hard to um, correct the error of their ways. So uh, River Cottage, which is Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall's business, um, was going to open up. But it, it did open up a series of um, eateries or restaurants, whichever you like to call them, 
and then it and then it crowdfunded, uh, but it used the bond. So as opposed to selling equity, it took the money in um, against what was called then a mini bond. So it was a five-year, seven percent interest bond, and then the money would be paid back out of the money made from investment. And it was about nine hundred and sixty thousand pounds, so just under a million quid. It's a lot of money, actually. And at the time that they promoted all of this, very professional package put together. You know, Hugh, Hugh is a um, is a very good presenter, and it was all extremely professionally well done. They had uh, three, and they were just about to open their fourth restaurant. So, uh, ignoring COVID for the moment, because this is all really this all went pear shaped before COVID even existed. They now have one restaurant, which I don't think will last probably much longer. They've paid back the bond. But only because um, a friend put in over three million quid. The company really overtrading is just the same as I suppose you might you might look at it and say, okay, it's like overstretching if you're doing yoga. I mean, you just basically in the end you'll fall over. You don't have the capital. So what so what you do is you is you have projections that are over optimistic. Now they, those are presumably internal projections used for management accounting. So they should actually be slightly pessimistic if you're wanting to run a business that doesn't run out of money. People don't seem to to understand that concept. Um, so you project that your revenue is going to be X, and on the basis of that revenue coming in in the next 12 months is X, you then spend a whole lot of capital to open, in this case, open new units. Uh, the new units fail because they've not been located in the right place or it's been a bad summer or they've had staff problems. You know, there's millions of different reasons why they might not work. So X revenue becomes half X. And that means that you can't pay the bills. You can't you can't service the debt you've got. You can't pay your bills. You have a cash crisis. So you have a cash flow crisis. And it is the most common way for startups to go bust. It's to, it's to stretch themselves out there and find that the revenue they projected, which allows them to stay out there, doesn't come in. They can't retreat because they've spent it already in capital. As I'm sure you know, if, if you open a restaurant and you close it, you don't get the money back that you spent on the shop fit. I mean, you might get 10p back. You know. And I see it the whole time. You know, it's, it's such a basic. I mean, I, I went to MBA school back in the 90s where you were taught these things. But but it, it, now people just laugh at me when I mention it. You know, they say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We don't we don't need to know that now. I mean, you know, because we've we've got these Internet businesses and cash flow is not important. Yeah, there is this feeling that if you've got easy access to capital, um, then any business is scalable. I mean, people, again, there's some bad examples in the sense of that people look at Amazon, for example, and for years, Amazon have been funded on the basis of it can just keep growing and doesn't need to make a profit. And if, there's any, if it's short of capital, it can just raise more, um, although it hasn't needed to very much. And if people feel like capital's kind of easy to access, you tend not to worry about the profits so much. And coming back to your analogy about stretching, I think that's a very good one where no one would try and go do the splits for the first day of exercise, but no. you would you would sort of say, right, okay, I'm going to work off stretching over three months or six months or a year, or in my case, probably about four years, you would get to the stage where you can do the splits. And for a lot of companies, gradual growth would be a lot better than going for the super ballistic J curve growth that venture capitalists expect. It's not sexy, is it? I mean, now, now, nowadays everything is instant, and I'm afraid that's that's leaked into common sense business where where people expect results yesterday pretty well. And I think it's it's one of the complications of equity crowdfunding because at the beginning of equity crowdfunding, everyone's saying, "God, isn't this great? This gives us access to capital." which we didn't have before, and that was true. But what we're missing at the moment is, I mean, in my day, back in the sort of late 80s, 90s, when I was actually running successful business and I needed more money, I would have to go and see the bank manager. And that that was, you know, I'd have to put a suit on and go and, and I'd have to prepare a, 
a really good series of spreadsheets and you know do scenario planning and all that stuff and and he generally told me to go away and come back and do it again a week later um it was a bit sadistic like that but but at least at least it made you uh consider the options there is no bank manager now because banks aren't really lending and not and, to these businesses no no i mean and, and and if you go on equity crowdfunding platforms all they want to hear is the upside that they're, they're not interested i mean i i know because i've run campaigns for companies and when when we've been realistic about the prospects the campaign has failed they're, in my opinion they're good businesses and they're still going which means i was right um they've gone and found the money elsewhere but because i refuse to sanction ridiculous uh, projections we didn't we you know so i mean actually it, it 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 backfires on me because then i've i find that you know companies are saying well we won't use you because you don't you're not successful yeah uh, but actually it's realism and it's really important and, and we seem to have lost touch with it yeah it's kind of this almost like a negative feedback sort of idea in the sense that if you're on an equity crowdfunding platform it any time they've got a dozen or however many is potential stocks out there. So you're com- competing with your story against these. And if someone's out there has these ridiculous pr- projections that sound really good and people are sort of comparing you against them and not really looking underneath properly, of course you're going to suffer. And that seems wrong. Well, well, it is wrong because because if you think about it logically, it's it actually... It, it ends up with a whole load of failed businesses. The proof of the pudding, really, is is it, if you look at Crowdcube. You know, Crowdcube is losing a small fortune or for its backers like Balderton Capital. Um, and and, and they, they're about to release uh, this new secondary market. It's taken them a while to catch up because Cedars have had a secondary market for a couple of years now. But but secondary market's not really the answer if if you're funding failing businesses because who's going to buy the shares in a failing business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, you you need that sort of degree of viability to reach to the stage where you have a business even at the time of the secondary sale that someone wants to buy, which is yeah, um, a key thing. So if we look at the platform, we, we, we said a lot about the negative stuff that's going on. If you're looking to invest in crowdfunding, there's obviously lots of potential mistakes. How does an investor actually avoid all these issues or at least reduce his chances of, or her chances of being exposed to them? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. Um, <laughs> You join ECF.buzz. <laughs> um, no, I, I, know, I know Rob's plugging it, but I, you know, I, I would second that. If anyone's interested in crowdfunding, the prices, you can save the price of subscription by, by not avoiding one bad investment. So it's really <laughs> worthwhile getting on there. Well, that's kind of you. We are building up a group of people slowly. Yes. Um, it, would, it would take us another couple of hours to go through all of all, but if, mm-hmm. if if I if I could give just a couple of tips, yeah. If you're not bothered about losing ten pounds or a hundred pounds, just put it wherever you can get the best rewards for your money and get a laugh. That's fine. That's that's so we got rid of that type of investor. If you're actually putting in five hundred or thousand or a couple of grand and, and you do want to genuinely see this business succeed and possibly make some money yourself, then do do some a little bit of due diligence you know do do and and don't get involved in a market which you've absolutely no clue about so say for instance don't don't go into a a tech sector that you don't even understand how it works because you will get your fingers burned and if you don't it'll be just a pure fluke so stick to what you know i think that that would come down to speak to the founders Generally speaking, uh, you can go to, to they well, <laughs> prior to COVID, they used to have um, events where you could meet the founders. But if you can't do that, pick up the phone and have a long, have a decent chat with them. They should be really enthusiastic to talk to you, even if you're putting in a small, for 10 quid, they won't be interested. But if you're putting in, you know, several hundred pounds, they should be interested in talking to you. Yeah, if, if I think if, if a management team can't be bothered speaking to investors at the time of the fundraising, that in itself is a bit of a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, yeah. Look at what they've achieved. I mean, I'm not discounting people who are doing it for the first time because you've got to start somewhere. The people who start from scratch are much more likely to fail unless they've got advisors on board. So, so for instance, if, if they say they have advisors on board, do speak to the advisors because I've come across a lot of advisors who didn't know they were actually in the pitch. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm serious. They, 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 they might have had a conversation over a, glo- a beer or something and said, oh, that sounds interesting, Derek. What are you up to? Oh, that sounds interesting, Derek. Yeah. And Derek then goes and puts, you know, Mr. So-and-so, who's quite a famous VC or something, um, on the pitch as an advisor. Advisor covers a sort of platitude of sins, and it's, it's worth checking out to see how, how much they are involved, because it will make a difference. You know, it, inevitably, when a startup gets into trouble, which it almost certainly will, and it might have to pivot a bit or it might have to completely pivot, you, you want some people in there who've done that before. You don't want some guy who's never changed angle or changed his, you know, the, the method of selling or the channel he's selling through or even tweaked the product. He has no experience because really then you may as well, you know, pick a number between one and a hundred and halve it. And, you know, it just, it's pure gambling. Um, so, so speak to that, speak to the founders, speak to the, their advisors have a look, have a, have a dig around their past. You'd be amazed what comes up. Yeah, I know from experience that sometimes when you Google people, particularly when the CVs look a little thin, that you can come up with some surprises. I, I Googled one director once and uh, the second link was to a fraud and the fourth link was to a second fraud. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 always, I always look at people's LinkedIn page, not to learn what they've been doing just but just to read the way it's been written because because those are written by the people so if they're bigging themselves up in a huge way in my experience that generally means that they've got nothing to be proud of that's not always the case but you just you need to read between the lines really because um the the internet's fantastic but it is absolutely jam-packed full of fake news mm-hmm you never believe I, I never believe anything I read in um, any paper actually without checking the facts. I suppose maybe one or two of the broadsheets I might exempt from that. But but there's an awful lot of um, equity crowdfunding journalism, which is I think probably paid for by the platforms, which is horribly positive about some really horribly negative things. And and it's problem that journalism I think generally has is that it's easier to take a press release and kind of just reword it than to actually dig into what's going on behind because the rewards for digging in behind are not there most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I've just, I'm looking at the list here of the, of the companies that, that have either done quite well or I think will do quite well. And it's, there's no specific sector. So I couldn't, I couldn't say to someone, look, you know, stick to... So I think it's important to stick to what you understand, even if you don't know it very well. At least you understand it. I mean, there's a great company actually based in Edinburgh, which I think is really going to start going places called Nova Innovation. Come across them, Tidal Power? I haven't. I've come across another Tidal Power company, but not that one. Well, last year they signed a contract in Canada to actually build. Um, they they do they they have these underwater. Um, power turbines, which are powered by the tide. And they've just also got a, a pretty substantial grant, I think, from something linked to the Scottish government to, to produce a similar thing on this side, so around the Scottish coast. You know, I, do, I, just, I just get the impression from reading about them and stuff, they don't generally don't blow their own trumpet. These are genuine articles that have been picked up by um, those sort of papers. Um, there's another one called Ad Hunter, which is in the advertising business. Um, Viva Barefoot, which sells shoes, very particular shoes, which don't almost don't have a sort of sole, so you're, you're almost on the ground. Okay, I so it's they- kind of like the barefoot um, or pseudo-barefoot sort of things that you get. Yeah, they have delivered, actually. Uh, Cheeky Panda, as I mentioned before, there was a brilliant restaurant in London called the Clove Club, 
which funded via Crowdcube very early on back in 2012 or 13. And, and were just incredibly sensible. So they didn't they didn't open another unit for three years. You know, that, that's unheard of in equity crowdfunding terms. And now they're making, um, well, the last time I looked, they were making over half a million pound net profit every year. Great. And they've got three or four units, you know, and going from strength to strength. And obviously, BrewDog is another one. It's good to know that crowdfunding can work. All these horrible metaphors keep springing to mind about, if, if you search hard enough, you'll find a rose amongst the thorns. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that, that was why we wanted to set up the fund. I think one of the problems is that these businesses don't have, they, they get access, certainly um, Hop Stuff, which was this brewery, got access to a couple of million pounds pretty well overnight. And, and it went to his head. You know, he didn't really know what to do with it. He spent it all. And then he turned around and went, whoops, I can't pay the bills anymore. He wasn't spending it on himself. He was just spending it on expansion, you know, with a capital E. Yeah, yeah. You get these stories. There's a brilliant one in the Dummies Guide to Crowdfunding where they funded this company and they raised, I think it's, it's American, so it's, it's 130, $150,000. And the week after the fundraise, they went round to see the two guys who raised the money and there were two brand new BMWs outside the door. <laughs> and they... The, the guys had just sort of said, well, we want to make, create a good impression, so we've just bought these cars. And and, and the guys who the yeah, equity crowdfunders, of course, heads in their hands going, oh, no, what have we done? Yeah. yeah. Yes, l- luckily that doesn't – I don't think that happens too often. I mean, there, there, have, there have been some cases which – I mean, well, put it this way, that there's been no one that I know of who's used equity crowdfunding who's gone bust, who's then been banned as a director. That, that isn't to say they shouldn't have been, but they haven't been. And there's, there's been no action taken by the FO, financial ombudsman, against any of the platforms. And again, that isn't to say that they shouldn't have done, but they haven't. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's lots, one small positive. Well, I know. But it's not really, because had they taken some action, we might have cleaned the thing up a bit. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll ho- hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll see better quality things coming through in the future. Hopefully. Well, I hope so. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's obviously in the platform's interest to get some businesses that then sell on for 10 times mm-hmm. because then they can actually promote those as reasons to invest in equity crowdfunding. You know, at, at the moment, they, I mean, if you look at Crowdcube's sort of um, attempt to promote themselves, they, they, I mean, they've got one company on there actually claiming a, a nine times return for investors. And I know this for a fact that, that, that one investor might have got that, but that was it. No one else got anything because I tried to sell it. Such <laughs> <laughs> a challenge. So what I'd like to do is move on to our standard questions. I'll throw these questions at you. And if you want to give me your f- sort of first thoughts, we'll see how this goes. So in the classic triumvirate of market product or management, which do you think is the most important when it comes to crowdfunding and why? Well, the, the most important when it comes to any business, in my opinion, is management. Good product in a good market, bad management is going to fail. Good management, not a very good product in a good market. They're going to make it work because they're going to change the product. Mm-hmm. You know, ma- management is everything. Okay. Tell us about a time when something went wrong and what did you learn from it? Just after my MBA year, I uh, took over a company up in Scotland, actually, which was into um, satellite mapping, selling it into the farming and land management sector. This was in 1997, uh, and I was just checking, actually, online today to see when satellite mapping became a, a major thing in the world, and it was 1997. So I was pretty early. In fact, I was too early because the farmer's didn't understand what the hell I was talking about. And uh, the land managers could see the benefits, but didn't want to take the risk. And and it went horribly bust, actually. Quite a lot of money lost. And I just learned the lesson that you can be too early. Uh, We had the wrong selling channels. We could never get the product, which was a brilliant product. We couldn't get it to the customer because there was this large barrier in the way called knowledge. And farmers are very busy people, and they're not interested in some guy coming around and talking to them about GPS 
which they didn't understand because, I mean, this was pre-GPS being a term that anyone knew. Um, you know, in those days, the American government was still running the satellite system and GPS, and they were and up until 2000, they were still blocking. Occasionally, they would just block it. So you ran, you were surveying a field in Berwickshire somewhere, and you'd end up in Kent. <laughs> what you could do about it, apart from sit and wait for the thing to come back again. So it was, it was. We were just too early, and I, I got overexcited by the whole concept, having just come out of MBA school and thought I knew everything, and got a, a sharp reminder that it doesn't work like that. Yes, yes, the real world's not quite like how, uh, the examples no, you get in your no, MBA no, course. No, no. Everyone's into satellite. We've spoken a lot about the sort of issues you see in the crowdfunding. If you could change one thing about the crowdfunding industry, what would it be? I'd get rid of Crowdcube. I set up a platform that was not for profit, uh, that was probably institutional, maybe run by uh, the British Business Bank, that attempted to really build proper, sustainable businesses for UK PLC. And, and give investors a reasonable return or a reasonable chance of a return, but give them give them proper information, allow them to make choices based on genuinely what people, you know, in the business and, and the British Business Bank thought was going to happen. Because the, the, the conflict we have at the moment, not just with Crowdcube, but also with Cedars, is that the platforms want to make money, and the only way they do that is by taking commission by getting these businesses funded. So, so if a campaign is run and it doesn't succeed to get to the level that it stated it wanted, Crowdcube and Cedars, they don't get a penny. Yeah, so they're kind of incentivized to either encourage or allow over-marketing. Absolutely. Um, and, and the FCA don't clamp down on them because they've been told not to by a series of government ministers. I mean, it, it's it's a, it's a, at the moment an intractable problem that we are trying to address, and I get a lot of criticism personally from people saying, you know, I'm such depressing so and so, and I'm an old curmudgeon, and I should just get lost, basically. Well, I'm actually not going to get lost, and um, and I'm right. If one thing has come out of this in the last nine years, I've been right ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Both good and sad in a way, because unfortunately, I think a lot of things you've been right about are things that have gone wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I didn't set the system. True. So I, we, we I, won't blame you. I can see how the system could work if the government was so minded to try and make it work. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not a. It's not a system that you can allow free market forces just to help themselves because. There, as you pointed out, the incentive is for people to get the money in so they can take the commission. And to do that, they, they are essentially going to um, tell a few fibs. Books. Lockdown has allowed me to get through dozens of books so far this year. What book would you recommend uh, for me to read? Well, if you haven't read it, Charles Handy's Empty Raincoat. I haven't read it. So there you oh, go. well, there you go. It's it's bite size. It um, is a a series of sort of slightly um, out of left field thoughts about life in general, and is well worth a read. It's quite short. Okay, I'm uh, going on holiday next week. I shall have a look at Amazon for that. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know whether it's still in publication. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you you can borrow my copy if we if we meet. When are you where are you going on holiday? I'm going up north, so I can swing by St. Andrews on my way. <laughs> Very good. What do you wish you knew when you started startup investing that you know now? I mean, I, I think one thing I believe fervently in is that, that you, you have to make the mistakes to learn the knowledge. You, you can't, I mean, if you're always successful, you don't really learn very much from that. And I, I've made a lot of mistakes. Hopefully, I've learned from most of them. I mean, you know when you haven't because you make the same mistake again. You go, well, I've just I did that a few years ago. <laughs> yes, it's when you slap your head and forehead and go, oh no, why yeah, did I? Yeah. I oh, know yeah. not to do that, but you do it anyway. 
So if people want to contact you, I think we've talked about the website already. ECF.buzz is the place to get in touch. Is that right? Yeah, or, or um, you can use my email, which is uh, rob at ecfsolutions.co.uk. That, that'll be on the website. Um, or just Google me and I'll come up all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> so that's Rob Murray Brown. Um, and we'll put a link to the website in the show notes anyway. Um, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Rob. That's been a fascinating talk. So yeah, thank you. That's been great fun. Thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon. Bye.